good morning. All right, we are in the middle, uh, actually the very beginning of our series in the Psalms. If you'll open up your Bibles to Psalm 32, uh, if you don't know me or if I've never met you, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, most weeks I get the joy to open up God's Word for you. And as you turn to Psalm 32, it's in the Old Testament. It's right kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, so you just keep flipping, you'll find uh, the book of Psalms. And uh, I want to set this up for you a little bit. You'll notice in the front of your bulletin that it's, uh, the series is called Intimacy with God in a Broken World. In the first half of the summer, we're going to look at what does it mean to be intimate with God uh, in a world that, quite honestly, is broken on almost every single level. And uh, I want to introduce you to this concept of intimacy one more time. And this is a concept that most people have a very hard time connecting with God. When we think of intimacy, we think of maybe really close friends or maybe our spouse. But as the Bible talks about our relationship with God, this word intimacy becomes incredibly important. And we looked at four um, uh, metaphors or four institutions that God has put into place that are representative of our relationship with him. And the first one is that God pictures himself as a dad, as a father. And he's not a stoic or distant dad, uh, but he is an incredibly engaged dad. In fact, Jesus, when he's praying to him, uses one of the most intimate terms. He calls him daddy or Abba. And there's a sense of intimacy that God is our father and tends to have with us. Another illustration or, 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 or metaphor that we used uh, was, the, it was the image of a bridegroom and a bride on their wedding day, and that when our relationship with God is pictured, this is the picture that happens, and not a marriage that's like 10 years down the road and jaded and, and the husband and wife are frustrated with each other, but a bridegroom and the bride on their wedding day, and God is pictured as the groom who sees his wife coming down the aisle, and he is rejoicing over her, and the bridegroom is so enthralled with her husband and she's crying as she walks down the aisle. I get to do a lot of weddings up here and so it's a beautiful imagery to see a bridegroom and a bride. Well, it gets even more intimate. Both the Old and New Testament give this imagery uh, that uh, the sexual relationship that God made this to give us a foreshadow of the level of intimacy and union that we have with God through Jesus Christ and that we will experience in full when we are in heaven but now we get glimpses into. And then the one that I think most people can relate to is that of a family, the kind of loyalty and intimacy that family has with one another. Now, I want to say this. Uh, there are no religions on the planet that have a God concept that where we relate to him with an intimacy or an intimate relationship. Most religions on this planet picture God purely as transcendent or other than or out there or as a scary dude up in the sky with big uh, gray hair who's just got his finger wagging and pointing at you. And yet the Bible does not picture God like that for his children. And in fact, that is a false picture of God. But uh, no religion, and I would say this, there even except for Bible-believing Christianity, understands what intimacy is with God because their pictures of God are purely or primarily transcendent. And yet the Bible teaches that, yes, our relationship with God is that he is out there and other than, but he is also imminent and near and by his spirit dwells in us. And there's an intimacy that we're called to have with God that no other religion calls to. In fact, every other religion at its core is based on a relationship with God out of fear and not out of love. And yet, Bible-believing Christianity says that when your sins are forgiven, because you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't have to work for your dad's love, because every dad in this room intuitively knows, I love my child simply because they're my child. 
And we know that they're not going to perform. We know that they're going to mess up. We know that they're not perfect. And our love for our children is not conditional on how they perform or don't perform. And yet this is a version of God, a false version of God that most religions teach and even some forms of Christianity teach that God's love for his children, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, is conditional. It is a lie from the pit of hell. And I would be terribly afraid of a God who looked at me and said, short of you performing, my love for you is conditional. That is a petrifying thought. Anybody in this room who understands themselves and their own heart and their own sinful inclinations should be able to step back and say, how could God ever love me knowing what I know about myself? And yet the Bible teaches that God desires intimacy with us and he grants that to his children now in psalm 32 there's a question that is being posed by david and i want to read the question to you in a couple different ways and this is a psalm that i think almost everybody in this room uh, can relate to if here's the big contingency if you have trusted in jesus christ by faith alone some of you when i talk about god and intimacy right you don't get it like this is not a connecting point for you And I I would submit for your consideration that if you cannot uh, handle or understand or wrap your mind around um, a God who desires intimacy, I want to submit to you that it is most probable that you have actually never been saved. You may believe in your head, but you have never come to God on God's terms and said, I trust in you. Forgive me. I believe in who Jesus is. And there is this wonderful gift that God gives us of forgiveness and intimacy with him when we trust in him. But there are so many Christians, and I can't tell you how many people come through our church doors, and their, their idea of God is that they know about God, but they've never had this relationship or this intimacy with God that we talk about. And they're like, help me understand that. Some of you have been in those shoes, and you decided, I'm going to take my belief in God from my head and even my actions, and to my heart, and I'm going to make a decision to trust in Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive me and to save me. And then you have understood what it means to be in an actual love relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, not an abusive fear relationship like most religions teach. So the question that David is implicitly asking is, how do I regain intimacy with God when I have messed up so badly? Let me ask it a different way. How do I re-experience intimacy with God when I have walked away and feel that God is nowhere near to me? And let me, let me clarify by what I mean by walked away. You can be in this room and have walked away from the Lord. And I don't mean that you've rejected Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, you're living a lifestyle that is in disobedience to God and you are pushing God away from you and you feel him tugging at you and you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and wanting to do your own thing. And I think for you, the question is going to be, how do I re-experience or regain that sense of intimacy with God. Because for David, as he writes this psalm, this is driving him, his desire to be near to God. Well, I want to start off, and we're going to look at this text a little bit different. Turn uh, to Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9. We're going to start off here. And Psalm uh, 32, like every other psalm, is a poem that is meant to be sung. This is the, uh, the psalms are the song book for the nation of Israel. And so <clears throat> there's a, an interesting point in this psalm where um, oftentimes uh, uh, poets will use different voices, and sometimes you'll talk, and then God will talk, and then the poet will talk. And, and verses 8 and 9 is this really interesting two verses where God talks, okay? 
And David is talking through the rest of this about guilt and how to come back to God and how to re-experience intimacy. But this is the two verses where God talks. And I just want to, I want to start off with you and say, what would God say to me, right? If you're right here right now, what would God say to me as somebody who has walked away, who is not experiencing intimacy, who is willfully choosing, right, paths that are not in line with the word of God. You are pushing God away. What would God say to you? And this is what I think he would say. First, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, just so you know, my eye upon you is not like, again, this oppressive, like, ooh, I'm watching you and I see everything you're doing. This is actually a very caring, merciful God who is like, who is, I'm watching you. I am taking care of you. Right When my little girls are about to trip or I see them going for something that they shouldn't go for, I go and I pick them up and I protect them. This is God's protective, careful, watchful eye, particularly for those who are his children that are in a season of disobedience or pushing God away. Okay? And here's what he says. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. Let me just translate. Don't be stupid. Don't be an idiot. Okay? Horses and mules are dumb. Don't be dumb. I know that sounds crass, but that's, that's literally what... It, don't be stupid, please. Why? Okay? Because horses, right? If they're going to stay near to their master, their actual source of not getting themselves in trouble and being productive and useful, right? They actually have to be bridled and they have to be controlled. Don't be stupid like a horse at all. Don't make me run after you and pull you back to myself. Submit to me. Stay near to me. And this is, this is what he says. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay, here's the word, near you. And this is, this is the issue. This is the word that brings it all together. The issue of nearness, right? And the issue with David's guilt is that it has made God feel like God is very, very, very far away. And God will have nearness with his children, and it's going to happen in one of two ways you pick. Number one is through discipline, okay? You consistently and willfully do things that you know are in our disobedience to God, so he has to treat you and me like a stupid mule or horse and pull us back to himself. Meanwhile, we are bucking the whole time. And there are genuine, true believers, true children of God who are experiencing this right now. You are bucking and bucking and bucking. And right now, you're under God's discipline. Like when a dad disciplines his child or puts them in a timeout, you're in God's discipline. And we're going to read the story here of David's discipline and what it feels like to be under the discipline of God. Don't be stupid and make God run after you and pull you back to himself. In fact, be smart is the admonition here. Submit to the Lord. Stay near to him. Draw near to him. And the way that we move away is through willful disobedience and neglecting some basic, basic practices that are commanded in Scripture to seek God through the word, to seek God through prayer, to seek God with his people. I mean, if you neglect these three things, you can count on this. You are not going to have a sense of nearness with God in any way, shape, or form. And once you start neglecting one, the other ones inevitably start falling as well like dominoes. So don't be a mule. That's the, that's the premise. Now, I want to go um, to verse 1, 32, 1. It starts off and says, a masculine of David. Most people don't know what these words are because they're kind of confusing. A masculine, most likely, we're like 90% sure, is a Hebrew word for instruction. And so we're going to see that David has gone through an incredibly emotional and life-changing event. And his job now, his agenda is, I want to tell you guys what not to do because I made the mistake and don't do what I did because I was a horse. I was a mule. 
impossible. And God had to come to me and curb me and pull me back to himself. If I could give you one bit of advice, it would be just submit to the Lord's leadership in your life. Just follow him. His way is better. And I know that when you're in the moment, it feels like this way is better. But in the long run, over the long haul, it is always better to obey and to follow the Lord's ways and to be near to him than to make him drag you back to himself. Amen? Amen. They're just making sure you're paying attention. Um, so we'll start in a, so a masculine is, is, is a, an instruction. And David, we know last week, was um, a man after God's own heart. And I just have some great encouragement for um, you men and women and kids and everybody in between who um, want to know God. You would say, I desire for someone to say about me, I am a man or a woman or a student after God's own heart. Like, this is a very intimate term, by the way. This is not a stoic term. This is a man who seeks to know God's heart, his desires, what makes God's uh, clock tick. I mean, he wants to know God, right? It is plausible that you could be a man or woman after God's own heart and do some of the most despicable things on the planet. And you're talking about a King David who sees this beautiful woman on the roof and says, I want her. And so he has sex with her. Some commentators think he even raped her, impregnated her, and to cover it up, killed her husband. Okay? And yet this is a man. This is a man who the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. And so whatever experience or whatever thing that you have done to uh, leave you with this incredible sense of distance or guilt, David's was worse and you can experience healing and have your intimacy with God healed. I hope that's encouraging because we love to beat ourselves up. And let me just say this. The statement I hear and my heart wants to say this, God could never forgive this. God could never overlook this. If you knew what I did, you wouldn't even forgive me. How could God? I wouldn't even forgive myself. Why would God forgive me? And by saying that, we make God just like us, trite and small. And God is infinite, infinite in love and mercy and loving kindness and forgiveness for those who are his. And so if you're in a situation today where you just feel wrecked, where guilt has overcome you, where you feel burdened by the weight of your own sin and your own rebellion, I just want to give you an encouragement. If David can write what we're about to read here, and if David can experience the happiness that comes from forgiveness, then you and I can experience that too. Let's go to verse 1. How do you know when you're a mule and God is dragging you back to himself? How do you know when you're under God's discipline? Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whom, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now we're going to come back to one. I want to focus on 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. And Selah is a poetic term which most likely just means pause, stop. Reflect on the weight of what was just spoken. Let it sink into your heart. Let it marinate in your mind. What was just said is important. Now, verse 3, for when I kept silent. So what you'll find is when you willfully 
transgress God's law, when you do something that you know, you think about it, I'm going to do this, and this is not pleasing to God. In fact, this is sin. When you go and do this, uh, the time between the action and repentance is your time of silence. It's this time of lack of acknowledgement of who you are and what you've done before the Lord. Okay, advice, keep this time as short as possible. Because the longer it gets, the next three things get worse and worse and worse. Number one, my bones wasted away. This is God's hand of pressure on your soul. I've felt this. Any honest believer has felt this. Now, hopefully you don't feel it for long, but this gets agonizing, agonizing, the longer the distance between your willful sin and your confession to God, the longer you take between these things, it is agonizing and fear comes in. What if I get caught? What if people find out? And it just gets so emotionally wasting. Number two, day and night. This is his poetic way of saying the thought of your guilt before and your specific sins keep coming to mind and you need to keep pushing them out. I mean, you know this, like you're thinking about the thing or the things you've done, and you're just like pushing it out of your mind. You go to bed, and you're like, maybe I can just forget about it. Maybe when I wake up in the morning, nobody will be thinking about it. Maybe God will just forget this, and it'll go away. But you go to bed, and it's there, and you wake up, and it's there, and you go to bed, and it's there, and you go to work, and it's there, and you go to school, and it's there. And it's like, get this thought out of my mind. When you are day and night thinking about what you have done, I have a hunch that you may not have fully come to God and repented. When there is a sense where you are afraid of getting caught and it is looming on your mind, you need to come back to Psalm 32. You need to read this and you need to go before the Lord and do what this psalm says to do. And then he says, my strength dried up. I mean, this is you're emotionally distracted. Right? This length between your willful sin and your confession gets long enough that it starts zapping you emotionally. Now, don't raise your hands, but have you experienced this? Right? For most people, yes. And again, hopefully this doesn't go on for weeks or months or years. But for some genuine believers, and we have to have a category for this, there are some people who go into a season of willful transgression for maybe a week or a month or some a year and then come back to the Lord. And it is exhausting. And there is this constant sense when they look back on this, they say that I had to keep stuffing, I had to keep pushing the Spirit of God away, I had to keep uh, numbing my conscience to not feel the discipline of God on me. And those are terrible situations to be in. And the only thing you can do to cope with it is to distract yourself and to be busy because every time you have a downtime, you're in the shower, you're in bed, it's like your thoughts just accuse you and they're like, you, you, you. And this heavy hand of God is on you and God, believe it or not, is near And he is weighing you down. And there is a purpose in this nearness because he's not going to let you get away, but it's not the kind of nearness where it is a reconciled relationship. It is the kind of nearness when you have to look at somebody you just wounded and you're getting ready to apologize and there's tension in the relationship. That's not the kind of nearness you want with somebody. And you're nervous. You're like, you want to say, I'm sorry, but you don't know how they're going to respond and there's tension there. This is the kind of situation that he's in. His strength has, has dried up. We'll go to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. Now, just so you know, like, if someone says to you, you've wounded me, and you go, I acknowledge that I've wounded you. <laughs> That's not at all what he's talking about. So I'm going to put that on the front end. Uh, uh, this is way deeper than that. This is from the gut. 
I mean, David has been experiencing the disciplinary hand of God on his soul, and it's heavy. And finally, he's at a point where God's got him in like a headlock, and he's like, uncle, I give up. I give up. And God brings him to his knees emotionally, and he feels it. Do you guys remember that? For some of you, you remember this because before you actually trusted in Christ, there was a sense that God was drawing you to himself, this increased sense in your life that things weren't right, and God was starting to convict you of things that you had never experienced conviction of ever before in your life. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wow, it's like God has got me in a, in a chokehold, and all I can do is say, uncle, because it's the only way I'm going to experience any release. And then you say, uncle, and he lets you go, and it's like the most amazing relief you can imagine. This burden is lifted off of you, and you're like, you mean we're good? You mean all I needed to say was I'm sorry and mean it and you would forgive me? And it's this incredible experience of salvation. Many of you have experienced that in this room. You know exactly what he's talking about there. But this is a different experience. This is an experience, I believe, of a person who is a child of God, who is living in willful sin, and God is just weighing heavily. And we see this with high school students all the time. They trust in Christ, and then they start wandering away, and they start, uh, I'm, I'm enticed by things, and they're pushing away God and trying to be near to these other things and it's like they just can't do it for very long because god is like smack i love you you're not going very far right it's like a dog on a chain my dog every time he sees somebody walk by our house runs out with all of her might and bark, bark 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 snap i mean gets pulled back it's like that's what god's like and we are so prone to wander and he is so crazy patient with us amen i mean i am amazed and i know pastors aren't supposed to say something i'm amazed at where my heart wants to go I'm amazed at the things I want to think and the people I want to hit, okay? I'm amazed. And if you can't identify with that, you're a liar, okay? And yet, God has told me that, Michael, when you trusted in Christ, I forgave everything you did or were doing, all the stupid thoughts we're thinking right now and all the ways you're judging me and I'm judging you or whatever. Like, if you're a child of God, those are on the cross. They're on the cross, But for some of us, even though our sins are paid for, God's discipline is heavy on us. Dads, moms, when you discipline your kids, your love for them does not go down one ounce, but your kid isn't feeling that love in any way, shape, or form. They're feeling your heavy hand, and they're feeling the weight. But you know what? When my little girl comes up to me and she says, Daddy, I'm sorry for disobeying you, and I say, I forgive you, hug, reconciliation. See, my daughter accepts forgiveness. I think as she gets older, right, she's going to get jaded, she's going to get prideful, and she's going to resist actually believing that she's forgiven. That just happens to us as we get older. But she gets it. She gets it. Now, when I don't say I forgive you, do you know what she says? Daddy, you didn't say I forgive you. Like, it's not done until I say I forgive you. And then she runs. Isn't that cool? Like, I wish I got that like my daughter did. But as we get older, we get jaded, and it's weird. But some of you genuinely, genuinely understand the heavy hand of God and then also the relief that comes from acknowledging your sin. Now, this is where the text gets really fun. There's some nuances here I want you to catch. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will. This is future tense, okay? I am intending to. I'm about to. I haven't yet, but I'm going to confess my transgressions to the Lord, plural, because typically it's not just one when you're in a state of willful rebellion. Like there's this heap upon heap upon heap of, of rebellion. Now get this. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When did God forgive? He didn't even say it. I mean, his heart was preparing to do it. And he's like, 
I was getting ready to ask for your forgiveness. And even just from the, from the moment that you even sensed that I was there, you're like, done, forgiven. Like, God is anxious to bring reconciliation to a relationship, right? Like, there are, there, are, there are some, and we know, it's like with my daughter. Now, say you're sorry. Now, what did you, what were you sorry for, okay? Now, say I'm sorry like you mean it, right? And God's like, as soon as he senses that our heart is right, he's like, on it, totally done. Forget it. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far this is away from me. Like, he is anxious in your rebellion for you to come to him. And you know what? He'll, he'll take it even if it's under duress like you're a stupid mule. He'll take that too, okay? But as soon as he senses that, like, it's genuine and you want it, he's on it, it's done, right? And the words at that point become just kind of obligatory because he knows our heart. Isn't that neat? Some of us are sitting here thinking, man, God is just, he's just like, I don't know if he's going to forgive this one. I, I, you know, this whole idea of, like, karma is going to come back to me and God is like a vengeful like judge on his kids and he's just going to get me back you know and and maybe some of you had moms and dads who were vengeful and maybe some of them taught you a God concept like that or maybe you learned it from other false religions okay but the God of the Bible is not a vengeful God to his children at all so when God says it's done it's done relationally you guys are healed and you know what there may be some residual effects to your sin there might be okay if you kill somebody you will probably go to jail, but what you can know is that you and God are okay if you confess the iniquity of your sin. And what God does not do all the time is clean up our mess. I wish he did. This world would be a lot better place if he cleaned up all the messes I made. But what he promises this is that I will restore intimacy with you. I will restore nearness to you. I will give you what your soul has been wanting if you would just confess your sins to me if you're, from, from your heart, if your heart would have this desire and acknowledgement. I love this passage. And again, Selah, let it simmer. Just let it sink in. As soon as you're ready, he's like, ah. Now go back to verse one. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And there are four words used for sin, and then there are three things God says he does for those whose heart is repentant, even before your words get there. And the first one, there's two words for their action words. Number one is transgression, and the second is sin. You'll see in the English text, at least in the English Standard Version, um, that's the version we're using and preaching from here. Um, transgression is a willful violation of God's law, Okay? That is a transgression. When my daughter does the opposite of what I clearly and explicitly told her to, she is transgressing me, okay? Uh, number two is this word for sin. And the, the best thing we can get to this is it's the idea of falling short. So, for example, you go to the store. Maybe you go to Starbucks and you have a Starbucks card. And you say, um, I'll have this, this, and this. It's ten ninety five, and you only have two bucks in your card. You fall short. You don't have what it takes. Uh, the best imagery I can really give for this is you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. And he says, why should I let you in? And you say, because I'm basically... A good person guess what you're going to fall short you're going to fall short because god says the only way you're getting in here is if you're perfect or i've totally forgiven you and if you're relying on your good works to get you your good works are like filthy rags to me okay so when you come up to god because you're a good person with your own merit you're going to fall drastically short and this is that idea of sin it's any action that falls short of god's perfection willful or not number three is the word iniquity and this has to do with more of our status. We are legally guilty before God because of our sin. 
It's not just something we've done, but it is a state of guilt. Sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's legal, but this word has to do with your status before God. And the fourth one is deceit. And this is the inner sin nature. I mean, we see that even the Old Testament has this incredibly developed concept of sin. Sin is not just what you and I do. It is at the core of who we are. David even says in another psalm, from the time I was conceived, I was sinful. From the time I was conceived, if I could speak, my very nature would be rebellion. And again, anybody who has kids in this room, you look at your little kids. You don't ever have to teach your little kids to do evil. You always have to teach them to do good. Because by nature, they are inclined towards chaos and sin. We are. And but by the grace of God and really good parents and people around us, we do silly, silly things. Augustine, who lived in the 3rd and 4th century, he said this. This was his favorite psalm, and he had it uh, inscribed on the wall of his deathbed. And here's what he says. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. I mean, until you get that you're a sinner... Until you get that, I mean, nothing really makes sense in this world, rightly at least. And you can never understand God's holiness and perfection and majesty unless it's in contradistinction to who you are as a sinner. And when you look at your soul and you see who you are and you see who God is, man, there is such a huge chasm. But when we say, I'm good, I'm a pretty good person, I'm pretty holy, I'm pretty righteous, you cannot say that and look at God. And it's the old illustration. You can say you're a great basketball player, but nobody in this room will say I'm a good basketball player when you're sitting next to, you name him, LeBron James. I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) Forgive me. But he'd school you over and over and over again. And when I'm standing next to you guys and you're standing next to me, you're like, yeah, we're pretty good people. Nobody stands in the presence of God and says, I'm good. Nobody. Well, then God gives us, or Paul, not Paul, David gives us three words that God does for us in verse 1. The first one he does is he forgives us. And this literally has to do with the idea that God is removing the emotional burden off of our souls. This heavy hand of emotional discipline God is lifting from us. And if you've ever experienced true forgiveness from a human or from God, you know this. Because as a Christian, once you've acknowledged your sin to God, the guilt before God and the fear that he's going to come back and get you, it goes away. It totally goes away. And I don't know why, I don't know why, I mean, I have some ideas, but why we are so afraid to come to God when he says, all you need to do is come to me, and I don't care what you've done, I'll forgive you. And yet we're like, oh, he'll never forgive me. He can, it's like he's told you, oh, he's not a liar. Run to him. Run to him. He will forgive you. When God's discipline takes its full course, genuine groaning is replaced with happiness. The word blessed here means happy. It's plural. I mean, imagine this like um, tons of blessings, happiness upon happiness upon happiness. And what's formerly this oppressive groaning literally turns to joy. And when repentance takes its full course, when you are actually in a place where you are feeling genuinely guilty before God for your sin, and then you genuinely understand what God has done for you, there should be a real emotion of joy, knowing that you stand completely forgiven before God. I think a lot of us don't have a sense of joy before God because we live in this consistent flight from Him or this consistent rebellion or this consistent um, postponing coming to Him and receiving it. Or we just lie to ourselves and we make God out to be a small little God who would never forgive somebody as bad as I am. 
which is just not true. The second word he says is covers. He covers his sin. This is uh, having to do with the idea of you're relationally forgiven. And this is a loaded term. I want to spend a minute uh, going into the context of this. If you are newer to the Bible, if you're newer to the church, uh, if you've never heard about this, I want you to put on your thinking hats for a second. I want you to pay very close attention because at the core of what we celebrate in communion, at the core of what happened on the cross is this idea of covering. And I want you to get this. I want you to know this. I want you to love this. Okay, And it goes like this. Uh, this psalm was actually spoken or sung on the Day of Atonement. And this is the one day of the year where the high priest of Israel would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And this is a place that you never went into because this was the centralized place for Old Covenant Israel of God's presence. And in the Holy Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was this lid on the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat. Not, it was made out of gold. It was pretty amazing and, and bland. You would have loved it if you saw it, but then you'd die if you went in. So don't go in. Okay, so so on the, on the mercy seat are these two golden angels or cherubim. And God's presence is said to be um, centralized between these things, between the two wings. And so on the mercy seat. And so what the high priest would do is he would walk in with all the fear and trembling that he could muster up. And he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed uh, animal, a uh, perfect animal, a spotless animal um, onto the mercy seat. And probably on the mercy seat were the sprinklings of dried blood from all of the other high priests who've come in there year after year after year. And so this guy goes in, and this has been something that God's people do on the Day of Atonement every year without fail. And there is this belief that the blood of this substitute animal um, covered them. Now, uh, let's get to the core of this, okay? Uh, what we learn from this is that God accepts substitute sacrifices. That's one of the main things he wanted to teach Israel is that God accepts substitutes. But here's the reality. Will the blood of bulls and goats ever pay the full price for our sin against God? No. And he never intended them to do so. And so there's a sense in which the, the blood of these bulls and goats temporarily covered the people or protected them from God's anger. And there's a theological word. It's in the New Testament in the book of Romans. Learn this word. Some of you who are kids know this very well by experience. It's called propitiation. And this is when uh, someone's wrath or anger is appeased temporarily, temporarily for a period of time. And so you, know, you might know that your mom or dad are going to be angry with you. And so you go clean the house. Or you clean the bed. And you're trying to appease their anger. We try to propitiate people all the time, right? And uh, God's people understood that God's righteous anger at their sins needed to be propitiated or appeased. And they needed to be covered. They needed to be protected from God's anger. And so what God said to them is, you do this, okay? You sacrifice these animals and you, especially on the Day of Atonement, send the high priest in and he'll sprinkle it. And I will uh, be appeased. I will be propitiated for a period. But the only reason, and I mean the only reason that God even permitted the blood of bulls and goats to temporarily appease him is because God, being outside of time, knowing all things, looked forward to the cross, saw what Jesus would do, and the New Testament says that God passed over the former sins because he looked forward to the cross. And that what Jesus did on the cross was the ultimate propitiation. It was the ultimate appeasement of God's wrath. It was the ultimate atonement. It was the ultimate covering. And all of these things that they would do, all of these little coverings, were all just foreshadows and gigantic arrows pointing to what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. The blood of a bull and goat, it's not going to do anything for you, but the blood of Jesus could cleanse your conscience for all of eternity. For all of eternity. 
The sacrifice of, uh, of an animal, the actual killing of it, uh, for our sins wouldn't do anything. But Jesus, the actual execution of Jesus, of him being our sacrificial lamb, he took on himself the full weight of our sin. The high priest who went through there, right, and actually walked into God's presence on our behalf, Jesus now is the high priest, and he walks into God's presence on our behalf and says, they've trusted in me, I paid the price for their sins, they're forgiven, they're covered, they're protected. And so David steps back and says, my sins, my iniquities, my guilt has been covered, and God did it. He's protecting me. And so for those of us who are Christians, right, when you sin... Uh, assuming you're already a Christian when I say this, when you sin, before you even do it, it's already forgiven. It's done. And the issue when you go to God and you say, I'm sorry, is not, and I want you to get this, it's not forgiveness, it's reconciliation. Because you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Done. I mean, today, I will do stupid things. I'm counting on it. I hope I don't. I don't want to. I'll try not to. I'll say something silly to somebody that was wrong or ill-motived or whatever. But before I even do it, Jesus paid the price for that sin, and it's forgiven. My obligation now is to pursue reconciliation with God, relational nearness with him again through confession. But some people have this really horrendous idea that if I sin or sin bad enough, God withholds his love for me and I could even lose my salvation as if that were humanly possible. I don't care what my daughter does, she'll always be my daughter. Done. And the Bible is overwhelmingly clear. There's nothing that you can do that can separate you from God's love, period. If you're his child, it's done. So David says his sin was covered. Number three... He says that uh, his sins are not counted against him. This is a legal term. Uh, many of you know the term impute. I want you to imagine um, that you are putting in all of your, uh, uh, your uh, transactions for the day in your ledger, okay? And you're about to put this transaction in and it does not get imputed or put into the account. In fact, right, the expense gets put into Jesus' account and he went and he pays our debt and our bill for us. And not one ounce of this gets put in David's ledger and not one ounce of our sin who are really in Christ, not one ounce of it is put into our ledger. Nothing. That is amazing to think. I mean, I know you all for the most part really well. Some of you I don't know at all, but by and large, I know you guys well and you know me and we are jacked up, okay? I mean, we are just a messed up group of people on so many levels and it is amazing to me to look at you and for you to look at me and think in God's ledger, there is not one, one line item of sin in that ledger. Not one. And if you know me, which a lot of you do, you're like, how is that humanly possible? And I'm looking at you and thinking, you're one lucky dude. <laughs> Look at him, Monty. <laughs> Psalm 103, 12. And this is where I got to ask you, do you believe God when he says it? Here's what he says. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's, that's pretty far. I don't know if you knew that. Psalm 86.5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Let's go to verse 8. Remember this from the beginning? God steps in and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you because I care for you. Don't be stupid. There's really, I mean, there is not a Christian on the planet who when they repent, look back on their sin and say, that was smart. <laughs> if I could do that again, I would do that again. In fact, let me counsel you. 
go totally mess up for a season of your life and experience all the negative repercussions of that and then come back to God because it's amazing. It's stupid. And some of us need to look right now at what we're doing and say, I'm being stupid. Because there is an amazing, forgiving, magnificent, glorious, beyond anything I can imagine God who will allow me to experience nearness and intimacy with him. And it's way better than this. It's way better. And the sad thing is when we're in the muck, the mire, the dirt, the sin, it is entrapping, it is enslaving, and it's very hard to get out. But sometimes God, like a good dad, pulls us out and draws us near to himself. So I want to close with this. David gives two um, uh, exhortations. The first one comes in verse 6. He says, therefore, let everybody who is godly offer prayer to you. And by the way, godly means those who are loyal to God, okay? And the implication here is that this psalm is written for those who are loyal to God, those who are um, children of God, who, have, who are struggling or who have sinned willingly or who have walked away for a period, okay? This psalm is most likely not first and foremost about unbelievers. Therefore, let everybody who is godly offer to you at a time when you may be found, <clears throat> surely... And the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. For you are a hiding place for me. I love this idea of protection. You preserve me from trouble. This is the sense of nearness that you have with God, that you are protected, that you are near, and that he's with you. And then this is my favorite one. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Uh, when you experience God's forgiveness. And when you come to him and you're like, oh, God, I'm sorry. I mean, the imagery here is that this is like a battle cry. They've just won a victory and God is the one doing the shouting. Selah. And just let it simmer. And the first exhortation is repent. And God is so ready to jump on shouting for joy at the forgiveness and the reconciliation that he wants to offer you right now. The second one is in verse 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. <clears throat> and again, too many of us know that line far too well. But the steadfast love, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Simple application. We're going to worship here in just a minute. Worship. Shout for joy. If you've been forgiven, okay, don't, don't be concerned with a million other things. I mean, you are forgiven. You are healed. And David is writing this as he looks back on forgiveness. And for those of you who are able to look back, now is the time where you shout for joy and you rejoice because I can leave here knowing God and I are reconciled. I can leave here knowing that. Now, I want to read to you in closing Psalm 51, if you turn there with me. And this is a psalm that is most likely, I'm like 98% sure, and so are most commentators, that Psalm 51 was written right after David's willful sin. And Psalm 32 that we just studied was written sometime later as David looked back on what he had done, and he looks back in the healing and the reconciliation that God has brought to him. Uh, he rejoices and is so blessed that he's learned his lesson, okay? And so the context of Psalm 51 uh, is, is, is pretty simple. Uh, again, David sees a beautiful woman, has sex with her, gets her pregnant, kills her husband to cover it up. And then Nathan the prophet one day looks at him and says, David, you're the man. You did this. I know about it. And David is pierced. And here's what David writes, and this seems to be uh, almost immediately after he was confronted. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your 
abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I am guilty before you. Behold, I was brought forth or born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You guys know this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I think this is the line that so many, so many in this room need to experience and come to God and say, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we just look at this psalm of a man who was broken by you, who acted like a mule, that you were so gracious. God, I thank you that you're not a God of karma. God, you have no sense of vengeance for your children. But God, you love us and you are waiting. You are waiting to restore reconciliation to us in a sense of intimacy and nearness. And God, uh, even right now, I, I have a strong hunch that there are people here who just feel your heavy hand of discipline. And Lord, this word is really, this passage is for them. And I, God, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to their knees in repentance and that you would teach them to believe you in their innermost being, that they are truly and totally forgiven by you if they would only ask from it from the heart. Lord, I pray that they would be able to leave here knowing that they have complete peace and restoration. And Lord, we also know that whenever we sin, Lord, that there are probably horizontal relationships with people in the church or our friends or family that we need to reconcile. And God, may we be swift to do that also so that there is no tension in our relationships with other people. Lord, we just admit on the front end that we are broken and that we are sinners and that we, if we have not been here yet, will be here sometime when we willingly sin against you. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you that you saw our need before we were even alive and you orchestrated the execution of Jesus on the cross for our sins so that we could have an atonement, so that we could have a covering for those who are your children. And so God, we come to you. I pray that your word would have its way in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.